The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the final 100 days of FDR's presidency and his life. It's the spring of 1945, and POTUS 32 is exhausted, but still determined to achieve his self-imposed lofty goals. He sets off on a 14,000-mile journey to the other side of the world to work with our allies to secure immediate peace and peace for future generations. The trip was a success. He came home, made a historic address to Congress, then surrendered to the many hurdles his body could no longer take on. The consequential final days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our focus today is on FDR, specifically the last few months of his presidency. And there's no one better to offer some perspective into this complex president than David Woolner. He's written several books on our 32nd president, including The Last 100 Days, FDR at War and at Peace. David, thanks for joining us here on American POTUS. Oh, thank you, Scott. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm delighted to, to have a chance to speak with you and Alan about the book. David, certainly great to hear your voice again. I will tell our listeners I was uh, very fortunate at one point in my career to be acting director of the FDR Library. I've had a, always had a great love of FDR. I will admit that up front. And, and uh, David's been a, a good friend through the years, and it's really good to reconnect. And thanks for joining us on American POTUS. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, before we get to the details of FDR's last 100 days, let's talk a bit about his fourth term in general. When did he make that decision to run for the unprecedented fourth term? And given his health issues, David, why did he not instead support a successor? That's a, that's a great question, uh, Alan. I, I think, I mean, the, the short answer, uh, the, the final decision to make the announcement that he was going to run for a fourth term wasn't actually made until probably the end of June, early July, 1944. Uh, but, you know, his overall determined to run for an unprecedented fourth term really stems from his determination to see the war through the, to its conclusion and to see the establishment of the United Nations. So I don't think there was really any doubt that he was going to try to run, you know, even as early as uh, January, February of 1944. I think it's for that reason that he didn't look around for a successor. He wanted to see the job through to its conclusion. And, and this may be an unfair question, but if he had thought about a successor, was there someone who was obvious that he had thought about or may have thought about as being someone natural to succeed him in office? You know, I I, I really don't think so. I mean, he he I don't think he ever really took the time to contemplate that question. And, the, the you know, it, it's an interesting question, too, because... The other thing that I raise in the book is that he was pretty ambivalent about running for the fourth term. He was, I think, quite sincere when he said in July, when he made the announcement that he was going to run, that all that was within him, you know, reached out to go back to his home on the Hudson River. And he he said privately to friends a number of times that he wouldn't weep bitter tears, as he put it, if Dewey would, 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 have, would have won. The other thing that's interesting is that the 
the public reaction was kind of almost whole hum. I think people kind of expected him to go ahead and, and run again now that he'd break and now that he had broken the uh, the third term precedent. That was far more controversial when he made the decision to run for a third term in 1940. By 44, you know, a large share of the public sort of expected that he would continue on because the war wasn't over. Now, you do a great job in the book of showing that in 1945, he was still active, productive, but he was indeed a sick man. Can you detail for us what ailments he had and how did he deal with those issues? He was under such incredible stress, had so great response, so many great responsibilities. How did he deal with those physically and emotionally? Well, as I, as I note in the book, you know, FDR was a lifelong smoker. Uh, who by the time we get to the spring of 1944 was suffering from the early stages of congestive heart failure. And uh, he also had hypertension. Even now, uh, today, it's easy to forget this was also a man that was confined to a wheelchair and couldn't get out of bed in the morning without the assistance of others. So he was uh, in in failing health in in 1944. uh, And due to his heart condition, uh, his physicians basically ordered him to cut his cigarette consumption to six a day, put him on a low-fat diet, prescribed uh, digitalis medicine, and uh, said he should only work four hours a day, which, of course, is just, frankly, laughable. You know, how is a president of the United States running a global war going to, you know, work four hours a day? So, you know, it, it, it's a quite an amazing story in, in and of itself. And, of course, as, you're, as, you, as, you, as you asked, he, he was frequently kind of craving relief from the stress of office. Now, David, you tell us about the people around FDR in those last 100 days. And I was especially fascinated with the increased role of his daughter, Anna, vis-a-vis others like Eleanor, like Harry Hopkins. What role did Anna play and who else was in that trusted inner circle? Well, Anna had moved back into the White House uh, by the beginning of 1944. And it was actually Anna who first became quite alarmed about the state of FDR's health. You know, he had traveled all the way to the Tehran conference in, in late November, early December 1943. And, and uh, upon his return was, you know, quite exhausted and uh, came down with bronchitis and the flu and just couldn't seem to, to recover his, uh, his health, so to speak. So it's Anna who kind of urged him to get a kind of full medical workup. And um, it's as a consequence of that that a team of doctors was brought in in March of 1944 to examine him. And it was during that examination that the young cardiologist, Dr. Bruin, discovered that uh, FDR had congestive heart failure. So, it, you know, it's out of those conversations that he was, again, ordered to uh, take these medications and, and uh, cut his workload, et cetera. But from that point on, Anna was quite concerned about his health and kind of, you know, monitoring his uh, physical condition, uh, trying to encourage him to rest when he could. And... Um, she ends up traveling with him to the Yalta Conference, where she really becomes a kind of gatekeeper in trying to avoid uh, undue stress and, and not allow uh, people who wanted to see the president uh, to see him, you know, whenever they felt that it was uh, necessary, um, and really tries to protect his health. She's, she becomes, you know, eventually becomes something of an advisor, and, and she even, because of what happened at Yalta, she tries to set up a system whereby she would have the final say on, you know, who is going to see the president and in a sense, what issues he's going to deal with uh, when she got back to the White House. That effort more or less failed. Uh, she was not really given that authority, but but she was playing an ever increasing active role in both uh, managing his appointments, trying to uh, make sure he got plenty of rest every day and uh, just 
and, and even serving in some capacity as a bit of a, as a, a political advisor. How does she relate in that role to people like Eleanor and Harry Hopkins and, and the other people you talk about in the book? It's kind of interesting because Eleanor Roosevelt had indicated to FDR that she would like to accompany him to uh, Yalta. And um, Roosevelt was against that idea. I, I think one, one of the things you asked me earlier about FDR's, how did he cope with uh, the stress of work and the fact that he had been in declining health? And, you know, he, he, what, he, what he tried to do is he wanted, when he wanted to relax, he wanted to be around people who didn't have an agenda, who would just let him be himself. And actually, there were very few people like that in Roosevelt's life. Harry Hopkins was unusual in the sense that he was, uh, an, you know, a key political advisor to the president. But he also was one of those individuals that FDR could sort of let his hair down and relax with. Another one is the Daisy Sukli, his cousin from Rhinebeck, New York, who spent a great deal of time with Roosevelt in the last hundred days. William Hassett, his personal secretary, was another one. Uh, you know, these are people that uh, Hassett's case, he works for FDR, but uh, he had the capacity. You know, again, he's he's basically there to help the president, not to put things in front of him. And um, Actually, Eleanor Roosevelt was not in that category. Eleanor Roosevelt was an advisor. You know, they had a, for many years, they had a kind of weekly breakfast meeting to talk about issues. Uh, she had her own memo box next to his bedside at night where she would put in memos about uh, issues she wanted him to uh, look into. So she's, she's more like uh, one of the people who, in a sense, when she wants to see him, has, uh, has an agenda, has things on her mind that she wants to discuss. And not not the kind of person that where he would uh, essentially be able to relax with. Uh, it's kind of one of the great tragedies of their of their marriage at the at the end of their their lives or his life. So she was a bit jealous of Anna and the fact that Anna was uh, going to go to Yalta and playing this more important role in, in FDR's life. It's kind of an interesting sure. part of the story. Really is, yeah, yeah. We appreciate you listening to American POTUS and want to ask a favor. Please rate and review the podcast on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate all the kind words of our listeners and all of our guests. And if you want to know more about today's guest and his terrific book, more information is easy to find on AmericanPOTUS.com. I love the uh, the descriptions you give of Yalta. You, you pay a lot of attention to that. Obviously, FDR's final meeting with Churchill and with Stalin. So could you outline for our listeners the major issues that were debated during those very tense sessions? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when it comes to Yalta, we have to we have to think about a couple of things. First of all, Yalta, although it 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 looms large in the public's mind as being, you know, the most important of the wartime conferences. Uh, I think most historians would argue that actually it was the Tehran conference that was actually the most important. And in many respects, uh, Yalta is essentially kind of putting the final touches on the uh, issues that had more or less been kind of framed out and to a certain extent decided at Tehran. It's also really important to remember that the war is not over. You know, this is one of the things that I stress again and again in the book. Um, when Roosevelt, uh, we open with the, the prologue when he's going up to Hyde Park for Christmas. You know, the Ardennes crisis is underway. Uh, there's a massive German uh, counteroffensive in, in Northwest Europe. Uh, the battle casualties for the month of December were the highest in the U.S. Army uh, since the D-Day invasion for that month. So, you know, the first thing on the agenda at Yalta was how to organize the final defeat of Germany. 
And, uh, you know, that in, in and of itself, we tend to forget. We sort of make the assumption, well, the war's over, but it, it really wasn't. Um, so that was number one. And with respect to Germany, what was the role that France was going to play in the post-war Germany? Would they get a zone of occupation? Would they get a seat on the Allied Control Commission? Of course, those, those were important issues. Um, but for the Americans, uh, the, the big three, I would say, were, you know, again, the final defeat of Germany, participation of the Soviet Union in the war against Japan, which was absolutely vital as far as they were concerned. Again, most Americans don't realize that four-fifths four fifths of the Japanese army was in China in the Second World War. And um, if those troops were free to you know, go back to the mainland to defend the home islands in an American invasion, it could lead to a real disaster. So they were desperate to get the Soviet Union to declare war, if nothing else, just to tie those troops down in northern China and Manchuria. Uh, and as Admiral Lee, he said, when they got that agreement, he said it was worth the whole trip uh, to Yalta just to get the Soviets to agree. And then, of course, settling the outstanding issues on the United Nations. That was absolutely vital as far as Roosevelt was concerned and the Americans. So those three things. They weren't expecting Poland to be this gargantuan issue. And then Poland becomes the one issue that takes up more time at Yalta than any other. But if you would ask people on the way over if that's what they would have expected, they would have said no. At the very end of that of that meeting, FDR was optimistic when he returned to the United States that a good settlement had been reached. But today, as you know, he's often attacked for ceding too much to Stalin, for losing Eastern Europe, for um, people say he was too ill to do this and was was taken in by by Stalin. And, and you you very much disagree with that. Could you could you tell us why that traditional criticism you, you believe is at least in part um, inaccurate? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's no question that Roosevelt was ill. And from that perspective, uh, that's true. But I was quite struck actually writing the book and doing the research for the book at how close Roosevelt's comments were during the Yalta negotiations and discussions to the briefing papers that uh, were provided to him in advance of the Yalta conference. I mean, he's almost he's almost uh, repeating the policy points uh, verbatim that had been prepared for him by State Department officials and others. So I, I really think there, and, and, and also the other evidence, the diaries of people involved and so forth, show that you know he was very much in command of his faculties at Yalta. That's not to say he wasn't tired. Uh, I think so was Winston Churchill tired. They're both uh, quite on in years. Churchill's older than Roosevelt. Stalin, of course, is probably the most vigorous of the three uh, physically. But, you know, I think it's important when you're, when you're thinking about these issues to think about a couple of things. First of all, you know, many of, uh, of the outcomes of the war were really decided far earlier. Uh, the U.S. decision to get into the Mediterranean and invade North Africa probably was necessary, but on the other hand, delayed uh, the Allied invasion, the Western Allies invasion of North, northern France until uh, June of 1944. And by that point, of course, you know, that, that essentially rendered the war against Germany largely defined and, and uh, by, the, by the Red Army in the Soviet Union. Ninety-three of the German battle, battle casualties were inflicted by the Red Army. So, you know, uh, and it also meant that Stalin was already deep into Eastern Europe and Poland by the time we get to um, Yalta. So the, the possibility of the Americans and the British forcing him out is really, you know, it's, it's just not a possibility. Uh, there's, there's no... There's no desire on anybody's part to go to war with the Soviet Union over these issues and over Poland. 
Um, so I think what Churchill and Roosevelt both wanted to do was try to ameliorate the situation. I don't think we should be so naive as to think that they could have, you know, waltzed into Yalta and, and gotten a free and democratic Poland um, as some sort of shining example of a complete democracy. Uh, I, I think they all, everybody understood that there was going to be a degree of Soviet influence. The question was, how severe would that uh, that degree of influence be? And, you know, the, the model for this, as I mentioned in the book, was uh, Edward Benish, the, the Czech leader, who in December of 43 recognized that, you know, Soviet power was a reality and uh, reached out to Stalin and, and negotiated that uh, Soviet-Czech agreement, which which allowed the Czechs to take over administrative control over territories in uh, Czechoslovakia once the uh, Germans had been driven out by the Russians and so forth. So they, they, they were working towards an understanding with the Soviets, whereas the Polish situation was far more difficult uh, because uh, Poland was a traditional enemy of, of, of the Soviet Union uh, and Russia, and, and the issues were much more difficult and much more uh, intractable um, uh, on both sides. So it was Churchill and Roosevelt were sort of caught in the middle between the London Polish government and exile, which had its demands on the one hand, and Stalin, who had his demands on the other. And they, they really were not interested in coming to terms with each other. Uh, so it was a very, very difficult situation. As, as I read your descriptions of FDR's focus on the future United Nations and the importance of that to him, it kept reminding me of Wilson at Versailles and his focus on the League. Is that a, a legitimate comparison? Well, yes, it is in a sense, but but there's a couple of key things. One was Roosevelt was determined not to let what happened to Wilson happen to him. And that is why he was so anxious at Yalta to get the United Nations issues settled, because, you know, the key difference between th these understandings on the United Nations and the drafting of the UN Charter is that those those actual negotiations and the meeting in San Francisco where the charter was finalized took place while the war was still going on, whereas the Versailles arrangements were post-war. So, uh, you know, this is a remarkable interview that I detail in the book with uh, Anne O'Hare McCormick at the New York Times on March 23rd, 1945, where Roosevelt really goes through his entire 12 years in office with tremendous interest and detail. He basically says we had to use the wars. As much as we find the Russians difficult to deal with, we had to bring them back into the family of nations, into the international community. And the war provided us an opportunity to do that, the, the, the great power cooperation that came about as a consequence of the war. So he was absolutely determined to get this, this process started before uh, the war was finished. And I think that's one of the reasons he was so determined at Yalta to move this issue forward. And one more question about Yalta, and we'll move on to other topics. But before we do that, can we talk a bit about FDR and Churchill? We, we know that relationship was close, but you show they butted heads at times. Uh, a friction that resulted in part from FDR's hatred of British colonialism. Could you talk with us some about that Churchill-FDR kind of Anglo-American relationship in those last 100 days? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I, you know, uh, again, the, uh, as I say in the book, in, in many respects, you know, as much as we don't like Stalin and as much as we abhor uh, Soviet dictatorship, and, you know, we could talk about this question for, for hours, but in many respects, the Soviet desire for security on its borders was understandable to both Churchill and to Stalin. I mean, Churchill and to Roosevelt, in the sense that they had been invaded by the, by the Germans, um, this, this terrible war and so forth. What was far more complicated for Roosevelt was the British Empire and British colonialism. And, 
And I think, you know, from, from Roosevelt's perspective, what he wanted to see emerge from the world was not so much competition between East and West, but this sort of new world order where colonialism uh, became a thing of the past, where there was freer trade, free movement of capital, access to uh, natural resources. And he saw the British as an impediment to that. And so did many of his chiefs of staff. As you know, they, they, they called the Southeast Asian Command uh, SEAC. They used to call it Save England's Asian Colonies. Um, there was great reluctance to fight the Second World War on behalf of uh, British interests. Uh, and in a conversation that uh, Roosevelt had with one of his aides in January 45, he, he said, you know, the British were working to undermine our whole policy in China. He said that London still clung to the idea, I'm quoting now, of white supremacy in Asia and didn't want to see a strong China. And, they, and Roosevelt said, in despite of temporary weakness, 450 Chinese million Chinese, quote, would someday be united and modernized. And he said, when this occurred, they would be the most important factor in the whole Far East. So I think Roosevelt's playing a long game here. It's the same thing with respect to Stalin and Poland and Eastern Europe. He, he never saw Yalta as the end of this process. This was an, an, on, a, an intermediate step on trying to create this new world order, which in his mind was really dependent, not just on the United Nations, but critically on great power cooperation. And of course, that would be within the Security Council. So, you know, in many respects, these issues are, are both serious problems for Roosevelt. Stalin's intransigence over, you know, trying to establish a democracy in Poland and Churchill's insistence on restoring British position in places like Greece. Uh, don't Let's not forget that the British intervened in Greece in December 1944 with troops and ended up fighting uh, a war against the uh, communist insurgency, which had been helping and been an ally against the, the Nazis. And in the American press, you know, people were asking questions, what are we fighting for? And they equated uh, British policy in, in Greece, for example, as not any better than Stalin's policy in Poland. Yeah, that's just a, a perspective on that. You don't hear that often. And, and certainly in the past, when I've heard about FDR and Stalin at Yalta and FDR kind of cozying up to Uncle Joe. That's been often portrayed as a strategy. But from what you're saying, it could indeed have been uh, FDR's dislike of those possible post-war British plans in places like India and, and the Far East. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's really important not to forget that Roosevelt is not alone in this, as I say in the book. He is also reflecting the view of his Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, as early or as late, I should say, as April of 1945, April 2nd, 1945, uh, that one of the chiefs wrote that the instances of Russian refusal to cooperate while irritating and difficult to understand, if considered as isolated events, are a relatively minor moment. In their mind, the key thing was to maintain uh, allied cooperation and cooperation with Russia was a key factor. I mean, those attitudes would change, of course, as time went on. But, but you know, in again, in the spring of 1945, we were still fighting this war. We still had to fight Japan. U.S.-Soviet cooperation was considered absolutely important from a military perspective. So in that sense, FDR was limited in his options. And, you know, we can be critical of him. He, he deserves criti criticism, of course, on many issues. Um, but I think it's very important to put the whole context in place. Now, we'll return to Yalta in just a second. But first... He made a trip after Yalta that I knew nothing about, to be honest. And I hate to say that as a former acting director of the FDR library, I probably should have known that, David. But but post Yalta, FDR makes a trip to the Middle East, a trip that that is immensely important still today. With with whom did he meet in the Middle East, 
What did they discuss and what were the results of those meetings? For a long time, you know, the whole question of, of what uh, you're referring to here is, is Roosevelt's meeting with the king of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, in, uh, the, in what's called the Great Bitter Lake in February of 1945 on his way home from, from the Yalta Conference. This story has its origins in FDR's really sincere desire to see the establishment of a Jewish homeland in, in Palestine. And, you know, he, he always had great faith in his ability to, as a negotiator, and to use his skill uh, and personal charm to bend world leaders to his point of view. And he really thought he could convince uh, Ibn Saud to allow uh, increased uh, Jewish immigration into Palestine and to come to some kind of an understanding or terms with uh, the Jewish community there going forward. And uh, he was also concerned about the, 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 the plight of the Jews. He, he said to the king, the Jews had suffered eviction, destruction of their homes, torture, and mass murder. And he, wanted, he, and he said he felt partially responsible and wanted to do something about it. Um, and he asked the king for his help. What's fascinating about this is that Roosevelt talked to uh, many, many aides about this. And everybody told him the same thing don't do it. Uh, the State Department was vehemently opposed to it because they needed uh, Saudi Arabian oil, and they were trying to develop a stronger, closer relationship with the Saudi king and other uh, Arab uh, states in the region. They thought this would uh, you know, cause problems for that. The military was opposed to it because they worried about the possibility of a flare-up. Remember, uh, we're still fighting the Germans. The possibility of renewed violence in the Middle East could cause all kinds of problems for the United States and for Great Britain. So they were opposed to it. Just virtually everyone that Roosevelt talked to said, uh, you should not do it. And, and, and not only that, it won't work. But yet he went ahead and insisted. And it's a fascinating story because it's very colorful, for one thing. As, as I describe in the book, they sent a destroyer down to pick up the Saudi king in Jeddah on the Red Sea in, in Saudi Arabia. He'd never traveled out of his country before and actually built a Bedouin-style tent on the deck of the ship so that he could stay there because his his uh, prime minister said he could never sleep in this captain's quarters, which they regarded as wholly inadequate. And, and he insisted on bringing sheep on board to slaughter for the king's meals. And I mean, it, it's an amazing story. But once he gets to the Bitter Lake, you know, Roosevelt tries three times to convince him to allow further Jewish immigration into Palestine. He even quotes uh, Waterclay Laudermilk, uh, who wrote a book called Palestine, Land of Promise, and talking about how he admired the Jews' ability to bring the desert to bloom. He thought the Jews could actually help the Arabs. Eventually, the king gets irritated uh, with, with uh, FDR and, and says, you know, this is not our responsibility. It's the Germans who did this to the Jews. They should be the ones who are who, who have to solve this problem. And when Roosevelt got home, he called it the one great failure of his career. He just could not move the king at all. He's, he said that to Eleanor, and he said that to his son, uh, Elliot, uh, on, upon his return. Just an absolutely just fascinating absolutely. Um, meeting and description of that. And the, the description alone, as you said, of, of the Saudi king traveling there, just absolutely fascinating. So I encourage everyone to read the book, but for many reasons, but that was prime among them. FDR's distant relationship with his VP and successor, Harry Truman, is straight ahead. But first, we want to remind you to visit AmericanPotus.com, where you can easily find a link to David Woolner's book, The Last 100 Days. And be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter, so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. 
let's get beyond that. He's back in the United States. He gives his address to Congress on March the 1st, 1945, what turns out to be FDR's last address to Congress. And he, he reports on his trip. How did he frame Yalta in particular? And how was then that agreement received by the Congress? FDR's speech that he gave to uh, both houses of Congress uh, after his return from Yalta is one of the more fascinating moments of the last hundred days. Of course, uh, Roosevelt was determined to give this speech um, within within two days after he got back from this very long journey. And as I say in the book, in some respects, it's the journey not so much to Yalta, but down the center aisle of the House of Representatives uh, that Roosevelt took in his wheelchair that is all the more remarkable. This would be the first time in Roosevelt's career as president that he would allow himself to be seen publicly uh, in a wheelchair. He would, be, he would be rolled down to the floor of the, of the, of the house uh, below the rostrum, and then he would sit, move onto his chair, and, and actually apologize at the opening of his speech for his sitting posture. He said it was he apologized for this and said he hoped the uh, audience would forgive him for sitting because it was a lot easier for him to sit than to stand with 10 pounds of steel strapped to his legs uh, after a 14,000-mile journey. Eleanor Roosevelt, watching all of this, remarked later that to her, it, it seemed that Roosevelt was actually admitting for the first time, not so much to the audience, but to himself, uh, you see, I am a, a crippled man. So it was a very moving moment. Uh, the purpose of the Yalta speech, though, was quite simple. It was to urge the American people to to see Yalta as the beginning of something new. Uh, this is the kind of, you know, what Roosevelt is trying to do, and, and I think it's very important to understand this, he never saw Yalta as, as a kind of end of, of war conference. Yalta was just one step along the way to an ongoing process of continued war uh, cooperation uh, among the great powers and the establishment of the United Nations and the creation of a of a new and better world uh, based on international peace and cooperation for the future. And it's that message that he really tries to deliver. And in many respects, you know, he he admits that it's going to be difficult, but but quite necessary. And it's interesting because in his uh, January of 1945 State of the Union address, he kind of hints at all of this, this need to to recognize that this is a process and that that, uh, it's going to be difficult. He said at one point near the end of his State of the Union address in 45, he said, in our disillusionment with the last war, after the last war, he remarked, we preferred international anarchy to international cooperation with nations which did not see and think exactly as we did. We gave up the hope of gradually achieving a better peace because we had not the courage to fulfill our responsibilities in an admittedly imperfect world. We must not let that happen again, he said, or we shall follow the same tragic road again, the road to a third world war. And I, I think Roosevelt was sincere in that, by the way. I, I often tell my students that when you consider the level of violence that was perpetrated in the Second World War, including uh, you know, the Allied bombing of German and Japanese cities, even before the dropping of the atomic bomb, I think Roosevelt was absolutely convinced that the world could not survive another conflict like this. So his great hope, of course, was to launch the world in a new direction. And uh, I don't think he had any illusion about how difficult that was going to be. But that was his purpose at the Yalta Address and uh, his hope that uh, his children and our children and the grandchildren the world over would be able to enjoy uh, many decades of peace. Even with that long view, though, as you show in his final days, he began to have more concerns akin to Churchill's concerns about Soviet actions, especially in Poland. So 
how do you believe if if uh, his health had been better and he had he had uh, served out that fourth term, how would he have addressed that issue as it became more and more obvious that that Stalin was um, uh, taking actions in Eastern Europe that that were um, not actions that we liked and certainly would not lead to the the freedom of that part of the world? Well, you know, Roosevelt. Uh, for Churchill, this was partially a political question. And I, and I also think it's very important to recognize that Churchill, like Roosevelt, is a party to essentially allowing for a certain degree of Soviet influence in Eastern Europe. Let's not forget, for example, that Churchill traveled to Moscow in October of 1944, where he and Stalin signed that famous percentages agreement, where the two of them agreed that Greece would be 90% British and 10% Russian, and they would split uh, Yugoslavia and uh, Bulgaria 50-50, and that uh, Romania would be 90% Russian and, and 10% British, and so forth. So there was uh, a recognition, uh, certainly on Churchill's part, that there was going to be a measure of Soviet influence in, in that part of the world. Churchill also, by the way, like Roosevelt, but uh, you know, he went home and, and told one of his aides that uh, he said, poor old Never Chamberlain was wrong about Hitler. I don't think I'm wrong about Stalin. And he said in the House of Commons that he, he knew of no government that, that kept his word, its word more sincerely than the Soviet government uh, after Yalta. So he, he was uh, caught up in the same hopes for the future, but he gets more and more frustrated. And, it, you know, as I d- detail in the book, again, we, we tend to overlook some of these things. They didn't really reach a final settlement on Poland, on, on Yalta. They left a lot of things undone. That's the problem. The, the original goal was to set up a new provisional government and to decide who would be uh, members of that government while they were together at Yalta. Uh, they didn't achieve that. So instead, they decided to, uh, Roosevelt shifted tactics and put pressure on the Soviets to agree to free and unfettered elections once that new provisional government was established. And they set up a committee in Moscow with the Soviet foreign secretary and the British and American ambassadors to determine who would be uh, in the new government of, of the you know provisional government of national unity, as it was going to be called. But the Soviets just used that to block every candidate that the Western allies put forward. And they just kept stalling and stalling and stalling. And without a provisional government in place, the United States and Britain couldn't recognize it. They couldn't send send ambassadors into Poland to find out what was going on. Uh, You know, so it was a very frustrating situation. And as weeks went on, Churchill became more and more frustrated. And we should not forget, too, that this is a political issue for Churchill. Britain went to war over Poland. Churchill knows there's going to be an election in uh, soon. And for him, it would be very embarrassing uh, politically if uh, the British effort to secure a, a reasonably independent Poland failed. So because he had signed this percentages agreement with Stalin uh, over Greece and in a sense had secured British interests in the eastern Mediterranean, he was much more anxious to have Roosevelt do the heavy hitting than for himself to do the heavy hitting. And he put a lot of pressure on Roosevelt to come down hard on Stalin about what was happening in Poland and the stalling that the Soviets were involved in and, and their behavior in Romania as well. And Roosevelt was, you know, he, he says on a number of occasions, it's not time yet to bring out the heavy guns. He, he wants to kind of let things uh, slide. But by, by about the end of March, he, he too is very frustrated. He, 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 uh, there's a scene that I describe where he's talking to one of his aides where he gets very frustrated and angry and says, Abraham Herman is right. You should never trust Joseph Stalin. Then there was the whole question of the 
Bern incident in, in, in Switzerland, the possibility of a negotiated settlement, uh, end of the war in Italy that created a lot of tension with Stalin. So there were real issues and a great degree of frustration on FDR's part in the final weeks of his life. So I don't think we should you know, simply come to the conclusion that Roosevelt was just happy to let Stalin do whatever he wanted in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, he's trying to make the best of a bad situation. And uh, he didn't live long enough to have the opportunity to to, in a sense, bring out the big guns that he, he thought uh, he might be able to. So in, in those last 100 days, David, let's let's turn to the bomb. What, what discussions did he have, FDR have, in his last 100 days regarding the possible use of that bomb, the question of uh, possible international control of the technology? What, what, um, what discussions were taking place about that, that new horrible uh, world-changing weapon? Uh, the story of the atomic bomb is, is also one of the more fascinating in the last hundred days. The, the kind of prelude to this is that as it became more and more likely that, a, that the atomic bomb would, in fact, be a success, uh, you'd be surprised. More and more people, uh, not only scientists, but uh, policy officials like James Conant and Vannevar ben, uh, Bush, you know, began to question about the possibility that you know, this is going to be a world-changing, war-changing weapon. And uh, perhaps maintaining what was considered to be a kind of an atomic monopoly between the British and the United States might be a bad idea. There was a sense that that this could result in a nuclear arms race, that, that maintaining the secret of the bomb would be virtually impossible, and that as a consequence, uh, it should be handed over to some sort of international control. Uh, as a means to prevent uh, this kind of nuclear arms race. Niels Bohr, uh, the Danish scientist who uh, traveled to Britain around this time uh, in 44, summer of 44, was arguing the same thing. It's these conversations that really disturbed Winston Churchill. He, he felt adamantly that the atomic monopoly should be maintained. And as a consequence of Bohr's activity in the summer of 44, he and Roosevelt signed what was called the Hyde Park Memorandum of uh, September of 1944, where the two leaders agreed that the maintenance of the atomic secret between the two countries must be maintained. And I think that was pretty much Churchill's demand. They also agreed that they wouldn't use the bomb um, without consulting each other and that they would only do so after what was called, quote unquote, mature consideration. And by the way, they, they referenced Japan directly in that. I think the assumption was that the bomb wouldn't be ready for use in, in the European war and that it would be over before the bomb was, was, was finished. So um, it's a fascinating story. And what happens is that uh, by the time we get to the last 100 days, Conant and, and Bush are putting pressure on Secretary of War Stimson to have this conversation with Roosevelt about the possibility of international control. Should we tell the Russians? When should we tell the Russians? And uh, others had brought up, including Bohr, had brought up the moral implication of using the bomb, uh, should it be demonstrated, and so forth. And, you know, Roosevelt is a busy man. He's exhausted. There's much going on and is uh, uh, running the war and, and, and as president. And it is until mid-March 1945 that Stimson finally has this conversation with Roosevelt about the possibility of international control. And, and no conclusion is reached. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Roosevelt often doesn't make a decision until he has to, as you know. And the bomb, nobody knew if it was going to work yet. You know, I mean, there were strong indications that it was, but you couldn't be sure. So there's no real need to make a decision yet. And as much as Stimson kind of pressed him to do so, there's no indication that Roosevelt came to the conclusion one way or the other, that he should keep the atomic monopoly or or, uh, 
or turn it over to international control. Of course, what's really dramatic in the last hundred days is the activity of Leo Szilard. You know, uh, this was the physicist who reached out to uh, Albert Einstein in the summer of 1939 to write the famous letter to Roosevelt, warning about the possibility that the Germans might develop this new weapon, what it was about, uh, and urging the president to um, really uh, look into the possibility of pursuing the potential of an atomic bomb. Uh, Sillard is really the one responsible. I mean, Einstein is the, is the most famous scientist in the world, which is why Sillard reached out to him, because he knew that Roosevelt would take a letter from Albert Einstein, but it was really Sillard's doing. And in, this, in the, the same month, in, in March of 1945, uh, Sillard kind of had this nightmare. He, he realized the bomb was going to work, that it was going to change the world forever. And he, he really wanted to have a second conversation with the president to talk about the moral implications. And uh, he actually reached out again to Einstein. He couldn't even tell. Einstein wasn't part of the Manhattan Project, so he couldn't even tell Einstein what it is he wanted to discuss with the president. But he convinced Einstein to write a second Einstein letter to, to FDR in March of '45. And uh, knowing that the best way to get to FDR was through Eleanor, they sent the letter to Eleanor Roosevelt. And she did respond, and she did say there would be an appointment. And Szilard was thrilled. Uh, he got the letter from Mrs. Roosevelt on a certain morning, actually April 12th, 1945. And he was sitting at his desk reading this letter, thrilled that he was going to have a meeting with the president when a, a, an assistant walked in and said, have you heard the news? Franklin Roosevelt just died. So the meeting never took place. So we'll never know the, what, what Roosevelt would have said, because uh, excuse me, Szilard would have asked him point blank, what do you think about the moral implications of this? bomb. Maybe we should rethink this. And I, Roosevelt never really had that conversation. David, what are your thoughts on why an ailing FDR did not keep Vice President Truman better prepared to assume the presidency if necessary? Well, I think there, there are kind of two answers to that question. Uh, the first is that the office of the vice presidency, you know, was really nothing like uh, sort of the office that we consider it today uh, with the prominence of Al Gore and Vice President Cheney and so forth. It, it really was a, a kind of sleepy office that really didn't amount to a position of any kind of uh, authority. Uh, there's no real constitutional definition of what the vice president is supposed to do other than take over if something happens to the president. So I don't think it's surprising that Roosevelt didn't pay that much attention to Truman. Also, I think it's important to remember that, you know, in spite of his ill health and in spite of some of his uh, premonitions of mortality, I don't think Roosevelt was expecting to die when he did. Um, but the other thing that we forget is you know, Roosevelt wasn't there. I mean, he he is gone for a huge amount of time in that last hundred days. He he goes down to Warm Springs for an extended uh, recuperation after the election in November. He's off to uh, Hyde Park for the Christmas holidays. Shortly after that, he's gone for six weeks or more to Yalta. So they they really weren't physically around each other. And I think also uh, Truman was very much a creature of the Senate. His interpretation of what the role of vice president was all that different from uh, his contemporaries or from Roosevelt. So I, I think, you know, we have to keep all that in mind. Had Roosevelt lived longer and had he been around longer, uh, he may well have spent more time kind of schooling Truman on, uh, on the issues at hand. But uh, as I said, they had very little time to actually sit down and talk to one another. You summarize at the end of your book the remarkable legacy of FDR. I know we both share great admiration for him. Can you recount some of the ways he transformed America and the world? 
Well, you know, again, I, I think it's very important to, to, to understand exactly that, that uh, if you think about Roosevelt's tenure in office, both during the Great Depression and the Second World War, he really did transform not only the relationship between the American people and their government, but also uh, the relationship between the United States and the rest of the world. You know, as the great historian uh, Bill Lechtenberg uh, once put it, before Roosevelt, the American people really only had contact. Their only real contact with the federal government was through the post office. Um, there really is no there there. There's no real state. Uh, there's no state intervention in, in the economy and so forth. Uh, Roosevelt fundamentally changes that with, you know, with the financial regulation that came in uh, early in his tenure, the setting up of the FDIC, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the passage of Social Security and unemployment insurance, the National Labor Relations Board, which set up collective bargaining for unions as a, as a legal right, the uh, minimum wage law. These things fundamentally reshaped the relationship between the American people and, and their government. And I would argue these these measures were actually designed to save liberal capitalist democracy. Roosevelt was no socialist. He was trying to save capitalism. His goal was, you know, how do you make capitalism work for the average person? He often talked about the hazards and vicissitudes of life. It's not your fault if the company goes bust and you're out of a job. So, you know, again, how do you make capitalism work in a way that protects the American people and provides a measure of security? And then, of course, the whole Second World War really transforms the relationship between the United States and the rest of the world. And here, I, I think it's very important to stress that from the generation that fought the war's perspective, and from, certainly from Roosevelt's perspective, uh, the Second World War had economic causes. It was the global economic crisis. You know, we, we need to remember that the uh, Great Depression was not confined to the United States. It was a global economic uh, crisis uh, that severely affected Germany and other parts of the world, and Japan as well. And in response to the economic hardship that these people were going through, they turned to extreme ideologies like Nazism and fascism. And so from Roosevelt's perspective, the war actually had economic causes. And from his perspective, therefore, it was vitally important to reshape the world's economic order once the war was over. And we see this through the establishment of the Bretton Woods Accords, which sets up the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank through the creation of the United Nations. And again, the United Nations not only includes the General Assembly, where we're going to have issues that are of great social and economic concern addressed, like World Health, we have the World Health Organization or the World Food Program and so forth, but also the Security Council, where the five big powers would hopefully be able to maintain the peace. And you know, I think there was a conviction that as long as those uh, four or five powers were sitting in the room talking to one another, we wouldn't have the outbreak of a, of a third world war. So his fear, of course, was that America would re revert to isolationism. He was very concerned about that. And, you know, I think that also plays into that urgency that I, I kind of refer to in his last hundred days. In October of 44, he once said to Harry Hopkins, anybody who thinks that isolation in this country is over is crazy. Once this war is over, it may come back as strong as ever. So again, that's one of the reasons why he wanted to get the United Nations up and running before the war was over, get the structures in place, get the American people committed to these ideas. So, you know, he, he is not only um, using his rhetoric, the, the, the four freedoms speech, saying that we need to build a world based on four fundamental freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, 
and the Atlantic Charter with its call for self-determination and, and social and economic security. He's not only using his rhetoric to encourage uh, these kinds of thinkings in the future, both for the American people and people around the world, but he is actually building the structural institutions uh, needed to carry these ideas forward. So I, I would argue that uh, in many respects, the the world we live in today, the house we live in, is, was a house constructed by Franklin Roosevelt. We, we may move the furniture around and do some rearranging, but in many respects, uh, both domestically and internationally, the, the global structures that we occupy uh, were built during the Second World War. Okay, David, it's time for my short and hopefully insightful questions about POTUS, POTUS 32. Okay. Past or present, who do you think his favorite president would would have been? Can I negotiate? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, three names come to mind. Thomas Jefferson, he was a huge admirer of Thomas Jefferson, and he's responsible for the opening of the Jefferson Memorial in 1943. Theodore Roosevelt, who he emulated and really basically modeled his life after. And present, I would, you know, post FDR, I'd have to say LBJ, whose great society program, establishment of Medicare, Medicaid, these kinds of uh, programs would have appealed greatly to Roosevelt. But I, I, if I have to choose one, I would probably say Theodore Roosevelt. He very much modeled his life. As I said, uh, FDR very much modeled his life after his famous cousin, Theodore. He, uh, he married his niece, Eleanor Roosevelt. He uh, ran for state senate, was a state senator like uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He became assistant secretary of the Navy like Theodore Roosevelt. He went on to become governor of New York like Theodore Roosevelt and uh, eventually, of course, president of the United States. So there was a lot of similarity between the two men. And, of course, they were great, both great conservationists and lovers of the natural world. So uh, I think uh, if you were to ask Roosevelt when he was alive, he would have probably said TR. And it's interesting. I was thinking as you were as you were saying that even the physical disability, right? Theodore had asthma disabilities and Franklin obviously had disabilities he worked to overcome. That's right. That's true. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt did suffer uh, rather dramatically at times from, from asthma and from breathing problems, uh, which he fought vigorously with, with strenuous exercise. And of course, FDR and, uh, tried to overcome his polio difficulties by strenuous exercise and working out in the pool and warm springs and so forth. David, the weight of the world was on FDR's shoulders. How did he unwind? What did he do for fun? I'm glad you asked that question, Scott, because that's one of the, the underappreciated aspects of FDR. You know, pretty much every day at five o'clock, he stopped work and insisted that everybody let their hair down. And he called it the children's hour. And he loved to mix martinis for whoever was there. He did it himself. If you can imagine the president of the United States mixing other people drinks and putting toast in a toaster, you know, which they, they had on a card table in, in, in the Oval Study, you know, with, with a special plug that was high enough because he was in a wheelchair. I mean, yeah, it was, it was and people were, were, were absolutely forbidden to talk shop, to talk about politics or issues during that, that, uh, that happy hour, or excuse me, that, uh, that children's hour period that, that he loved. And, and he really needed that. And also, the other thing I mentioned in the last 100 days is, you know, his kind of strong desire to, uh, on the weekends, try to unwind and be with people that he liked. There's a very moving visit with the Mackenzie King, the Canadian prime minister. They had a long-standing relationship and were very close. Uh, and conversations with others, you know. Uh, so you, you really do get the sense that, that uh, the pressures of the office really did weigh on him. And he wasn't 
lying when he said in 1944 that he really wouldn't mind if, if he lost the election. Scott, at, at the end of every American POTUS episode, I want toast and liquor from now on. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. David, what's the one word that best describes him? Kind of like a Secret Service code name kind of thing. That's a tough question. I, I, I want to make sure I pronounce this correctly. Ebullient, effervescent, ebullient, uh, optimistic. Do you have a favorite quote or moment from those final months? Yeah, I already used it up, unfortunately, but I'm going to do it again. Um, I think it's very moving when, um, let me find it. I've got it. I want to make sure I've got this right. I mean, you know, I, I really do think that description in the book of that last um, State of the Union address is quite remarkable. In our disillusionment of after the last war, we preferred international anarchy to international cooperation with nations which did not see and think exactly as we did. We gave up the hope of gradually achieving a better peace because we had not the courage to fulfill our responsibilities in an admittedly imperfect world. We must not let that happen again. We should follow the same tragic road again, the road to a third world war. I think that's very powerful. And finally, David, in just one sentence, here's your challenge. In just one sentence, can you summarize FDR's final days in office? Well, that was the the hardest question I've ever been asked. Um, <laughs> so you're I, welcome. I looked in my uh, I looked in my epilogue. I've actually got the book out in front of me now, and this again requires negotiation. But I think the paragraph, um, and maybe you can edit what you want out of this. But it's uh, unfortunately FDR's unbounded optimism and faith in his own ability to carry on despite his utter exhaustion after years of toil would not revive his frail body. His final tribute to Jefferson was never delivered. There would be no address from his wheelchair to the opening of the United Nations Conference. His chance to return to his beloved home upon the Hudson to live out his years in tranquility and peace denied. But his spirit and vision endure in the institutions he helped create and in the determination of of people the world over to continue to build that, quote, permanent structure of peace that he worked so hard to establish during his time in office and at no time more urgently than in his last 100 days. Very well put. Yeah, very well put, David. Just a, a great example of an extraordinarily well-written, well-researched book. Uh, where, can, where can our listeners learn more about your work and what's next for you? Uh, well, I continue to, to uh, be a professor of history at Marist College in upstate New York, which is just a few miles from the FDR Presidential Library. And I continue my work at the Roosevelt Institute, uh, which is dedicated to carrying the legacy of Franklin and Eleanor War. Uh, Roosevelt forward for future generations. And uh, I'm I'm, uh, just finished a chapter in a book about Winston Churchill, about Churchill Roosevelt and uh, the special relationship that's going to be coming out with uh, uh, next year at uh, Cambridge University Press. It's called A Companion to Winston Churchill. And um, I am working on uh, another book. To be announced later what the theme is. Yeah, I think I should hold off. (laughs) Okay. We're trying to get a scoop here, but I understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I uh, I am close to kind of clinching a deal, but I probably shouldn't say it until I... No, of course not. Of course, of course. But when, when that is done, David, please uh, think about American POTUS. And, and I want to, before we end today, I just want to encourage everyone listening to go to Hyde Park, uh, the, the library and museum, the, the uh, Roosevelt Home, absolutely wonderful institutions, beautiful area 
If you haven't been, go. If you've been, go back. It, it's really a, just an amazing institution, amazing place. And and the work the Roosevelt Institute does is stellar. Just amazing support, amazing work they do there. So I highly recommend everyone go to Hyde Park and, and uh, check it out. I would totally endorse that, uh, Alan. Absolutely a, a beautiful spot. And uh, thanks to Roosevelt, he, he left it to the people of the United States so everyone can enjoy it. David, can you tell us what's coming up with the Roosevelt Institute? Sure, Alan. We're very excited about a a conference that we're helping organize this fall at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum up in Hyde Park. It's part of the Morgenthau Holocaust Collections Project that the FDR Library launched uh, a year or so ago. Uh, We're going to be looking at at, uh, new scholarship on the Holocaust and issues like FDR's relationship to that question and and uh, issues of uh, digital humanities, how uh, new approaches to the to Holocaust scholarship. It looks like a very exciting event, and uh, I, it's open to the public. And I would urge everyone to go to the FDR uh, website, FDR Library website, to find out more about it. David, it's been a real joy reconnecting with you. Thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. Thanks, David. Thank you, Alan, and thank you, Scott. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens and participates in the podcast. More information on all of our terrific guests and their published works can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, we'd love to see your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. And remember to like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Franklin Roosevelt, quote, I believe that in every country, the people themselves are more peaceably and liberally inclined than their governments. <laughs>